Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations with the intention of demystifying, destigmatizing, and desensitizing what really gets talked about behind the closed doors of the therapy room. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Selkin. And we're seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. So join us as we dive into the ways that therapy can be connecting not only to yourself, but also to those around you. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. So today's guest is somebody that Danae and I have been looking forward to talking to for a while. We value his opinion in so many ways on so many topics, right? But he really does kind of just bring this amazing ability to explain concepts around sexuality, concepts around um, sex in general, concepts around kind of like the dance of dating, just all these really interesting things. Um, And I love the way that he breaks it down. And so anyway, this is just a funny conversation because we felt like we had so many questions going in that we almost didn't have time to get to all of them. It felt a little bit like he was in the hot seat. I hope he doesn't feel that way. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like it it felt less conversational to us because we had like a list of things we wanted to ask him. We only had an hour and he's just such a rich, like wealth of information such a wealth of knowledge. And I yeah. think you're like captivated listening to what he's right. saying. He brings forward these truths that I feel like, you know, are not hard to understand about masculine and feminine dynamics. Like they actually, when he spells them out, feel really obvious. Right. It's like, he's explaining, this is what's going on here in a way that you're like, oh my God. We even had that. We had an aha, (laughs) you know, in a topic that we've talked about a million times. And then to have him talk about it in the way he did, we were, we were both like, like head blown. So I hope you guys enjoy our head being blown too. (laughs) Really helpful for us. I know this episode is going to be really helpful for so many people in their Mm -hmm. relationships, in understanding themselves and their own journey of healing. And I'm just really excited to get to share him with our audience. have Stefano Safandos, who is a relationship alchemist, a masculine and feminine educator, and an advocate for men's empowerment, among lots of other things. And something else, somebody that I think today and I have been looking forward to having a conversation with for a while, because he speaks to a lot of the conversations that Danae and I speak to coming from a depth psychology background. And so we're very, very happy to have you here today. So I appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here. Stephanie, I feel like your content is so profound and something that I share with male clients all the time. So thank you for the work that you're putting out in the world, first of all. Um, And I think Vanessa and I would love to just start off hearing a little bit about your journey up to this point and how you got started doing the work that you do. Yeah. I've always, when I say always, from a very, very young age, from maybe four, five, six years old, I've, I've been very interested in the human mind and human potential and just the way we interact with each other as human beings, you know, our origins, how we hear, why we hear, how we treat each other, the way we treat each other. And that fascination, a lot of that came from being very insular as a kid and feeling very unsafe as a kid. And so I would ask questions about why, like, why is this happening? Why is my father violent? Why are my parents always fighting? Why do I always feel scared? You know, why am I always hiding in the world, you know? Um, and, and when I, as I became older and started really playing with shame and guilt and anger and, and sadness and all these very big feelings, sensations, emotions, 
um, that that curiosity deepened. And that coupled with so a very volatile environment, coupled with um, my mother being uh, really quite the person that would expose me to so many different disciplines and so many different ways of being and spiritual constructs and religions and cultures and all of that. Mm. Um, it sort of, it became this concoction of curiosity mixed with, I want to help others, but really as a kid, I really wanted to help myself, but I didn't know how to verbalize that. Right. Mm. But that curiosity became a habit. And not only did it become this neurological patterning that was, was, you know, laying my, my experiences were laying down a neurological highway of this is the, the path that I'm going to take, but also it became just a deep, deep intrigue. As I began to become older, you know, I suppressed much of my trauma and, and much of what I experienced as a kid and started becoming very angry at the world and angry at myself. And, and there was self-hate and self-loathing, and, but at the same time, still super curious about the world culture, religion, spirituality, um, our origins, the cosmos, like all of that. And so I went into, I went to university late. I, I traveled the world a lot, which was a form of escapism at the time, but it was still very beneficial for me. Um, and I experienced a lot in that way. And more than most people would at the age of sort of 17 to 21, 22, um, came back and then went to university and, and immediately just started studying psychology and behavioral science. I had to I had to go in as a mature age student. That's what, even though I was 21, that's what, that's what I was classified as a mature age student in Australia back then. And I just started studying at a deeper level, right? In addition to my life experiences. But again, still grappling with this part of me, this shadow side, shadow sides, I should say, that were really um, rampant in my life. And so just to shorten that story, I spent many years in these two worlds of attempting to be in integrity and, and really developing skills in, in helping people navigate their own complexities, but never dealing with my own, never dealing with my own pain and trauma. Yes. would go to therapy. Yes. would see coaches. Yes. would see shamans. Yes. would expose myself to various spiritual practices, but I'd only go surface level. I wouldn't go deep enough mm -hmm. to really touch the trauma that I needed to touch and deal with it and titrate that and pendulate that and be with that and orientate myself through that in a way that, or with others in a safe space, in a way that would actually free me from that pain. And that was the key, right? I, I never felt safe enough to do so. So I kept looking for distractions, whether it was sex, you know, love compulsion, sex addiction, whether it was alcohol, whether it was achieving status, having more money, pursuing adrenaline, mm. um, whatever it was to distract me, you know, so I then hit a, a very hard wall when I was in a relationship a number of years ago in my early thirties, very early thirties. And um, she found out that I was being unfaithful in that relationship and everything started to shift. A lot of shame came, shame came to the surface, a lot of the trauma resurfaced, um, massive amounts of guilt and shame again. Um, and witnessing what my actions were doing to this person, to our relationship. And I really started to look at who am I being in the world? And it just really wasn't serving me. And I, and I began to just acutely look at all of these actions that I'd taken and the way that I treated people and treated myself and allowed others to treat me and the way that I handled situations and my coping strategies and everything else in between. And then I really started seeking help and I made a commitment to, to I, I started seeking support, but I made a commitment to go, deep no matter what like I didn't I didn't care where it took me if it took me to suicide if it took me to a mental asylum if it took me to 
uh, a place beyond repair, um, I was willing to lose everything. And that was only for me personally, that was the first time and space that I could actually surrender to what was unraveling, which was a lot of unknown mm-hmm. and being in that with massive levels of discomfort and fear and pain and terror, actually terror because the trauma was starting to resurface as well. Cause I'd given myself permission to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it was done by myself, but also with other, other people, but I, I gave up everything. I, I gave up my businesses. I, I, I lost a lot of friendships, social circles that had been in my life from a very young age that I was very attached to because those social, social, social circles also helped me find reprieve when I, um, I was a child or a teenager at home in a very violent, abusive household. Mm-hmm. And so there was a deep, deep connection of savior there. And I had to let those friendships go because they weren't serving me anymore. They weren't bad people. Just the whole dynamic wasn't serving me. So there was a lot of loss. I was losing money. I was bleeding money, got credit cards, right? I was financially a mess. It was, I was just, just really let myself hit rock bottom multiple times. Mm-hmm. But I started to crawl my way back out and as I did so you know a couple of years after that um learned a great deal and started really harmonizing the person that I wanted to be in the world and the person that I knew I could be also while there were pockets where I wasn't but where I was really studying still the human mind and and I I was I immersed myself in even more literature mm. but only literature actual practice as well like experiential practice um and then a couple of years later sort of hit that that path again relationships being great teachers being another relationship and i was very happy that that relationship had ended however it also evoked and triggered something in me and i went down that rabbit hole again mm-hmm. and then after that i i really recovered and i am where i am today and, and that's where i really started putting the pieces of my life together in a different way so it was a it's quite a few years of, of turbulence and a, a tumultuous time but <laughs> And, and I don't think it, you know, looking back at my life and looking back at, at the, at the lives of the people that I work with, and I, I do this work day in, day out. I think that we, we find ourselves in a space where when we address the core of our issues, everything after that, it's not that it's smooth sailing, but it's nowhere near as intense. And so when we find that we come against challenges or we, experience painful circumstances or relationships that are causing us to feel a a particular way that's very dense or very painful or fearful the way that we deal with it is less because the resilience that we've been able been able to um, collect along the way of dealing with those real those core wounds helps us navigate the rest of our life and from that place i I still experience discomfort or pain, but the way mm. I deal with it is very, very different. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I feel like I just love how much you sort of viscerally <laughs> bring us into the experience of the fear that I know so many people feel when they're attempting to go into this work of uncovering the trauma, the pain that I haven't really dug into yet. And um, you talk about, you know, Vanessa and I come from a depth psychology background. So a lot of Jungian psychology and you talk about the shadow in a way I haven't really heard anyone else speak to it, which is you talk a lot about introverted and extroverted shadow. And I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you say that. 
Yeah. So there's just, I mean, for me, it's just a way to understand the world. I think, I think, um, you know, a way to understand the world is through contrast, mm. but that's how we learn as human beings, right? Uh, we learn richly. We learn, we learn very deeply in that way. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes when we create contrast, it helps us understand a concept or a way of being in the world. Right. And so for me, if I look at shadow work or the shadow of who we are, or the aspect of our personality or our character, our expression, our attitudinal self in the world, our spiritual self, whatever that may be, the parts that we hide from the world because we think that they're shameful um, and they're, uh, you know, we're scared, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think if we look at it as, as sort of dark and light or extrovert or outwardly projected or inwardly projected, we can, we can begin to understand, Oh, that's, that's interesting. Like that's, that's some of the behavior that I have that allows me to see myself in a particular way. So for example, like I'm just thinking of a, um, of a, an extroverted shadow, Mm. hypersexuality can be an extroverted shadow. Right. And so what I, what I mean by that is, and this is for men and women and we present it in a, or the feminine and the masculine, which is also different to men and women. And we present this in the world in, in a slightly, in a slightly different way. Right. Mm. But that hypersexuality can be an extroverted expression of either um, low self-worth or low self-esteem, or even um, a result of experiencing sexual trauma or, or sexual abuse and an introverted um, expression of that, of, of, um, of shadow when it comes to uh, sexuality could be hiding from the world, hiding one's sexuality from the world, hiding one's personality from the world, um, being addicted to um, pornography as an example, but hiding that from the world, whereas hypersexuality can be very, very different. Right. And so there's just, there's two examples of that. And we just, we look at it and it's, it's not that one is worse than the other or one is better than the other. It's just a way of understanding ourselves along the way, along the path when we had an infliction point or various infliction points of um, here's some pain that I experienced as a, as an individual. Um, how have I dealt with that? How am I coping with that? Right. And that's, that's just one way to, to look at that. Yeah. It's just like, um, I mean, it's just using words like introvert and extrovert to really just use like, is it, are you externally putting your pain out into the world or are you internally bringing your pain into your Mm. world? I Mm. mean, it's pain either way. Right. But how are you actually manifesting it? Um, yeah, I like that descriptive. Mm -hmm. I also love that you said, you said, um, curiosity as a habit. I picked up on that. And there was something about that that just really struck me because, you know, we always use this term like seeker or somebody who's just constantly out there. Um, You know, we could go into when it does actually turn into something that we need to kind of look at as almost a compulsion. But I like this idea of curiosity being a habit Um, and and almost like honing that part of the brain and strengthening that muscle. Um, Because what does that do, right? That makes sure that we're kind of always hungry to understand, not just ourselves, but the world around us. Right. And that in itself is actually going to expand your, um, your resilience. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, here's something that's interesting. When we, when we enter into a state of curiosity or consistent curiosity um, outside of ourselves. So there's a, there's a willingness to look outside of ourselves. There's a curiosity that we have around the world that is happening outside of ourselves. We're moving beyond the acute sensation of trauma where we're almost because trauma wants to complete its cycle. 
mm-hmm. always. It's a cycle of feeling and releasing, and it does so through our sensations. It needs to release. When we have stuck trauma, we're so insular. We're so inside. We cannot we struggle to be curious. We struggle to want to know what's outside of us because we're in survival mode. Mm. So that curiosity becoming a habit is essentially us dealing with our pain and dealing with the stuff that's stuck, dealing with all the fears that we have that are holding us back. And fear is a, is a state of being that is a constricted state. If we're constricted again, we're insular, we're wrapping up, we're protecting. So we're in a hypervigilant, hyperprotective state. We don't have space to be curious. Mm. How would you suggest to somebody who is maybe just starting out on that, how to make curiosity a habit? Deal with and face the the pain, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. We can't do that if we don't feel safe or at least right. safe enough. Now, one of the ways that we feel safe is through, is through others. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, relational neuroscience tells us this as well that we our bodies change our physiology adapts with respect to what's happening in our environment particularly with the relationships that we have and so cultivating healthy friendships supportive mm. friendships people that see us people that respect us and revere us people that support us people that are non-judgmental and compassionate people that can hold a space of loving presence and empathetic resonance what this does for us at such a deep visceral levels to help our nervous system feel safe because trauma is in the nervous system trauma is in the body it's not it's less in the psychology and more in the body and at least initially right of course psychology definitely plays a role what we think of ourselves and what we make things mean and the compound effect of that but initially it's in the body and so the neuroception of our nervous system needs to feel safe and so Mm. work with a therapist a shaman a coach a group of people aa meeting whatever it may be that helps you feel safe enough to relax enough to explore some of these things events experiences constructs concepts you have in your mind whatever it may be that have hurt you that you can equilibrate and release yeah you know I was just thinking as you were talking, one of the things that I love about your work that I share so much with my male clients is I feel like this thing you're speaking to around creating safety in our relationships is something that I find my male clients are so hungry for. Like they're like, I can't have conversations like I have with you, with my guy friends. Like I would be so deeply shamed for this. Um, And I'm wondering how you hold space for that with men. Like how do you encourage men to like, start having those conversations to reach out in that way because I feel like collectively there is such a lack of holding space for one another that I am watching men experiencing a lot of suffering around right now yeah I I would go back to what I said a moment ago around non-judgment and compassion right Mm. and so surrounding yourself with people with men other men specifically that a non-judgmental towards who you are. Now, what's go, let me let me unpack all of that though, because it's very easy for me to say, you know, be with men that are non-judgmental and that see you. Like it's right. it's an easier said than done thing, right? And I get mm. that. And there are moving parts of this. So, firstly, the current peer group that you have as a man is probably not going to be serving you in that way. Men is a way to, and there's a few reasons for this, but men is a way to bond and connect, often bond and connect through banter and through pushing each other and challenging each other, but often challenging each other in unhealthy ways, making fun of each other, working through hierarchy of a pecking order within the social status of that small, that micro peer group or the larger peer group, whether it be society at large, you know, how much money do you have? What's your job title? Where do you live? Shit like that. Mm -hmm. So, but within a small peer group, sometimes we're challenging ourselves and if 
people are unhealthy, insecure, and not confident in themselves, they're going to push each other in unhealthy ways. They're going to either undermine each other. So in an introverted way, they'll be manipulative, right? Or they'll be extrovert in an extroverted way. They'll be harsh. They'll be violent. They'll be abusive. Aggressive. They'll mm -hmm. aggressive. That's right. They'll, they'll rage. They'll be oppressive in their actions, right? And they'll be very loud in that. And we're constantly creating this hierarchy. So you've got to maybe look at your current peer group and say, are they really serving me? Mm. Now, the, the other moving part is to be able to surround yourself with people that are non-judgmental and compassionate, which is often very strange for men because they haven't had that experience either in their own family dynamics or their own peer groups. You have to get out of that peer group and you have to move into another dynamic, right? Another, another um, social circle or social circles. Now, in order to do that, you need confidence, so there are many men that don't have confidence or have confidence in certain areas of their lives, but don't in others. For example, simple example related, but not completely re uh, related is military men, particularly spec ops guys. There are so many spec ops guys that are so specialized in what they do and, and so revered and respected in their, uh, in their culture and even in, in the subculture of men, so to speak, but sort of put them in various social settings, put them in the civilian world, and they, they, they're lost to a particular degree, right? And so we can carry specialist um, tools and specialist ways of being in certain environments and situations, but not in others. And so we lack this robustness. And so we need to develop confidence in how to be with people, but how to be with ourselves. And so one thing that men can do really simple is set very small challenges for themselves. And it could be getting up at a particular time, having a particular morning and or evening routine, um, you know, setting a particular challenge um, in the realm of fitness. It could be depending on where you are on your journey. It could be, I'm going to do my best to walk 20 minutes every day, or I'm, my goal is to lift 500 pounds from the floor, whatever. Right. And so these small challenges keep building them and, and make sure that you can achieve them. And so as you achieve these challenges and, and move through them and you can do some reflective practice on it, like some journaling and mm. so forth, or even just sitting practice and stillness and reflecting on the experience of the challenge that you just overcame, mm -hmm. what can happen from that is you start to develop confidence. Mm -hmm. And like anything in life, so how you do anything is sort of how you do everything. And the parallels that are drawn in between between cultivating confidence in in certain areas of your life and then making bigger decisions it can really lend itself to that and then now you're exploring new ways of being now you've maybe got some opportunity to get out of that that um, dynamic that you're in that is holding you in the energetic that you're in now next thing the trauma piece you've got to deal with your own stuff we spoke about curiosity right and so in order to be truly curious about what's possible, we have to get out of our own way. And to get out of our own way, we've got to clear up the clutter of the past, which is usually pain. Not everyone experiences trauma. The vast majority do. Let's face it. We live in a very interesting world. Conversation for another time. But so many of us, you know, and traumas, again, there's big T trauma, there's little T trauma. There's not, there's, there's the, the, the stuff that happens to us that's re, like super, super clear, like, super clear the stuff that happens to us right and then there's then there's the um the stuff that happens to us that that occurs over time and it's really we don't notice it but mm. it remains with us and it becomes it becomes like a habit for us right mm. um and we get we get stuck in that space and we get really scared as well and so we we have to make the decision to deal with our trauma because if we don't guess what happens it runs us. It becomes us. Right. We, we become our trauma. We become our pain. There's, and there's honestly, there's no way around it and through it. And so 
we have to deal with our trauma in order to and deal with our pain and our fears in order to move beyond that into the realm of curiosity. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is what I tell clients all the time. It's like the psyche is always, the unconscious is always going to be trying to complete a cycle, right? Which is what you're talking about with trauma. So this is why you're seeing yourself get into the same type of relationship over and over again. This is why you keep putting yourself in the same kind of work environment over and over again. In some way, the unconscious is going, well, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe Mm -hmm. if I do it this way, this time it'll be different because most likely you're unconscious on its own, your psyche on its own, it's not going to be able to complete that cycle. So you have to be able to cultivate that curiosity in order to get in there, sit with that pain, sit with that trauma and understand where is this habit coming from? Where is this pattern coming from? Right. And how can I complete this traumatic cycle in a a healthier way, in a more contained way, in a Mm. way that somebody can witness me in, um, help guide me to hold that space for me? My, my partner, when he works with specifically male clients, he talks a lot about, it's fascinating that you said this. I've never heard anybody else talk about it in this way. When you say like setting challenges for yourself that you can overcome, that you can complete and how that yeah, is like a slow way, right? To build that self-confidence in order to then do the bigger work. He always talks about it in, in terms of like the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, right? He's like, a workout can be your hero's journey right? It's like you, you set the intention, you go out to slay your dragons, you slay your dragons, you come home to the village, this changed person. And every time you have one of these micro heroes journeys, essentially you're building that sense of self, right? Mm. So I, I've just never heard anybody else speak to it like that. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. I feel like one of the things we were really excited to pick your brain about Sephna's a little bit is that, so Vanessa and I are both mamas and you talk a lot about, you know, the masculine and feminine energies in both men and women. And we have been so struck since becoming mothers, how much we are so deep in our masculine, a lot of times in our roles as mothers, which feels a little bit counterintuitive to what we would think. We would think it's like, you know, a very nurturing time in your life. Society says (laughs) it's actually not, it's very like task oriented, you know, like, um, tackle this, like figure it out and keep people alive. (laughs) Yes. And what we find and hear so many mama clients speaking to is how hard it is then to meet the men in their lives. When I am so deep in my masculine, I think this year, especially, um, women are just like really struggling to meet their partners and to drop into their feminine spaces. And so I guess what I'm curious, you know, from your perspective is like, if a man is coming to you and his partner is so deep in her masculine, um, how do you sort of suggest that he meet her? Um, Or even like, what would you say to women who are like really struggling with sort of like shutting down this aspect, not shutting down, but, you know, managing this aspect of self that just feels like it's sort of taking over in this role of motherhood. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a complex conversation because there's so much going on physiologically within the mother as well to wanting to be a protective mama bear. Right. And, and when we want to protect, we want to take action and be very direct and almost very linear and efficient in our way of being. And that's a masculine energetic. It's not Mm -hmm. connected purely to men, but it's a masculine energetic. And so again, we're just talking about contrast. Is it a masculine energetic first and foremost? No, it's a human energetic. It's just a way of being in the world. We call it masculine for various reasons, for biological reasons, cultural reasons, and evolutionary reasons, right? Um, 
you don't, if you don't want to call it a masculine energetic, you don't need to. People get offended as like, okay, get offended. Don't get offended. I don't know. Just call it something else if you want. It doesn't fucking matter. But yeah. what, all it is, 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 is it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a, there's a dual set. There's a separation, so to speak, but the, the separation actually lends itself to wholeness, just a way of understanding. Mm-hmm. And so the mum is in this, in this energetic, right? Now, if she feels unsafe, if she feels unsupported, if she feels uncertain, guess what? You're going to dig your heels into more of that energetic. You're not going to, you're not going to be relaxed. You're not going to be soft and passive in your demeanor. Mm. You're not going to be more trusting. You're going to have more cortisol and stress hormone and adrenaline running through your body. You're going to be more acute to your environment. You're going to be less curious. You're going to be more attuned to what the baby's needs, but also you're going to be more stressed. Mm. So what can a man do? the healthy masculine energetic wouldn't be threatened by that. A healthy man or a healthy human being wouldn't be threatened by that and would, would somewhat understand what is happening mm. and would be supportive. We're not try to out masculine the woman, so to speak in this case by demeaning her or judging her or being oppressive towards her or showing his physical might or whatever it may be. And so you compliment that. How do you do that? Every man has, I mean, every, every healthy person would do that in a different way that, that suits that, that very dynamic, right? It could be based on, I don't know. I'm not saying that every single person has to have an intricate understanding of the psyche. It's really not about that. Your body and you as a person know way more than you need to know. You just need to tap into it. You need to be willing to tap into that. That's really, it's a simple, it's honestly as simple as that. And so reading the person, asking questions, mm-hmm. taking action, People struggle to the unhealthy masculine, the unhealthy man won't take action because he has a fear of being rejected. He's not wrong. He just hasn't dealt with his fears of being rejected and abandoned and humiliated. And so he's going to pause and hold back and maybe be, he's going to be super passive. So he's going to go into what we may call a hyper feminine state, right? Where he's now diffusing himself completely of responsibility. Or again, he may get so frustrated and angry that he goes outside of the relationship to attain status or credibility or validation. Like I'm going to work 15 hours a day because if I work 15 hours a day, I'm wearing that as a badge of honor because I'm bringing more income in for my family and I'm doing what needs to be done. But in the interim, your partner is really suffering mm. and your partner's not being seen and, and feels like she has to do more and more and more. And she does, then doesn't appreciate what you're doing. And you're like, well, hold on a minute. I'm doing all this work and I'm getting, I'm, I should be validated now. Well, fuck you. Well, that's, I'm not going to do I'm, and there's this massive confusion mm. when if we just sit with each other and just ask each other what we really need and, and do our best to not critique and judge each other on that and also not be attached to how the other person responds in terms of, well, I can do that or I can't do that, but just meet each other with love, mm-hmm. meet each other with compassion, meet Curiosity. each other with, well, <laughs> we'll, say, we'll say that again. Curiosity. Curiosity. Yeah. And just meet each other with, wow, this must be really, really hard for you. Mm. I don't need to fix it. Uh, just you please tell me more and if, and if there's something that you want me to do specifically please ask and if you don't know that's okay as well like a lot of a lot of times like even in my relationship i'll ask my wife i'll say okay so what do you need from me she goes i don't know and there'll be times where mm. i'm not in a good mood or i'm frustrated i'm like well fuck i can't help you if you don't know what you want and then i get frustrated at her which just makes things worse and mm. it's okay for me to say it's okay that you don't know what you want. Well, I'm going to do what I think is is right and what you need. And if that doesn't work, then you'll let me know. And I'm not going to get offended because more often it's about 
the people's individuals, the individual's personal experience, their internal experience, or it's, it's less about you. People don't, give, people don't give a fuck about what you're doing. They care about themselves. We all care about ourselves. <laughs> like we're in tune to ourselves. It's, it's an unconscious thing. We're, we're here, we're in a constant state of survival and we're in a constant state of thriving if we choose to be. Mm-hmm. But we're in a constant state of survival, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Now that can be a real cute state of survival where we're very aware of it, or it can just be, our body's doing the things in the world, their thing in the world, right? And so if we make it more about the other person, less about ourselves, and actually understand that their pain, again, there are people, there's a caveat to this as well, because there are people that are intentionally malicious and there are people that hurt other people to feel better about themselves. And I'm not saying that's your fault um, and, and that you should just not make it about, of course, if you're going to be hurt, hurt then you have to set healthy boundaries, but more often than not, we don't take action and we don't lean into an uncomfortable situation because we're scared that we're going to be judged or ridiculed or rejected, et cetera. We're going to put that, put that aside and, and actually the simplicity of, hey, I'm here if you need me, let me know. Or, hey, I've got you. I'm going to do this for you. It can be so, so powerful and so simple. <laughs> Just taking that in because that feels like such a helpful explanation um, in a way that I feel like sometimes it can be really difficult for us to drop into empathy for what this feels like for the men in our lives. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> I feel like that's really helpful. Yeah. And I, I like, I'm imagining, you know, if I'm in this hyper-masculine state, I'm imagining my partner coming to me and saying to me, I mean, I'm also trying to think like, would I get, a, would I get like triggered by this question? But it's like, you seem like you're in this state right now, you know, needing to do, 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 or control or whatever. Um, what can I do for you to almost like help you balance that, to help you kind of feel like you can fall back a little, to help you feel like you can soften again, to help you feel that feels so supportive to me, because mm. that would, to your point, bring up this feeling of safety. It's like, oh, he's noticed this. I might not have even noticed it, but he's noticed it, which that in itself makes me feel seen, right? Mm. And now he's giving me a way to say, oh, okay, you know what? You're right. I don't like being in this hyper-masculine state all the time because for any of us, when we're out of balance, it doesn't feel good. Mm. He's giving me an opportunity to say to him, if you stepped in and did X, Y, and Z in support of me, I can then take a breath and become a little bit more balanced in this moment. And, and I'm imagining in my body, actually, what that would feel like. And it yeah. was really good. <laughs> it's amazing how much of a somatic response there was. Like, Stephanie, you were talking about, like, she doesn't feel safe. Like, yeah. I felt it. Like, oh, it's because like, I oh, that's what it feel is. like it will be taken care of if I don't handle it. Thank you. <laughs> we just had this conversation so many times we both have like hers is three minus one so we're in that like masculine early early motherhood stage so it's it's helpful you know what the interesting thing is as well as you were saying that is when you first said it i miss i misunderstood then i got exactly what you were saying but i thought that when when i first heard you say what you just said i thought that you said that was a trigger for you if if um your partner would come to you and say, Hey, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. I thought that could be a trigger for you. And then I understood what you said, but then I started thinking, huh, for some women or some people that may be a trigger. Like yeah. when, when I'm, when I'm, and depending on how it's done through somatically as well, like if someone's coming really aggressive and the, the tone and the non, the nonverbal body language and all of that, the nonverbal communication is, is very 
uh, aggressive, so to mm-hmm. speak. You're doing story. this almost like a finger pointing. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would that would be that would hurt. But even for me, I know when I'm in I'm in a state where I'm feeling insecure or my my worth in that moment feels really low, mm-hmm. um, and someone would, would point something out that I'm doing. I would take an offense to that and I would immediately get defensive and I would immediately get protective. Right. And I think it's also knowing each other. It's, it's knowing how each other communicates. It's, uh, it's putting agreements in place when you're both in really more enlightened places, you know, where you're more connected and intimate in your, in your relationship and say, Hey, now let's talk about when, when it gets a little hairy or when it gets uncomfortable, when it gets difficult, how do we want to behave with each other? And let's, keep reinforcing what that looks like. So when we get to that point, we get to communicate with each other when we're in a, in a hypersensitive situation or, or a, a situation that just doesn't feel good to us. We know how to communicate to each other to get the best out of us and not to pull ourselves out of that, like to, to give us the dignity of the process, right? We don't have to fix anything. You don't have to, you, you've got tears being your tears. You've got anger being your anger. You've got joy being your joy. Like we don't need to change that, but how do we navigate that when we're in it to give you the, the most, the most optimal experience. And in my, from my perspective, the most, one of the, the ways that we have a most optimal experience is not changing the situation. So, so sometimes it's really difficult. If you, let's just say we're talking about motherhood, right? So let's just talk about postpartum depression, either in men or women, because it's, it's a, it's an unspoken thing in men as well, by the way. Yeah. So and I know you probably you're aware of that. So postpartum depression in men, women, irrespective, fathers, mothers, doesn't matter. Goes on is a week, two weeks, a month, three months, four months. Now the other partner that maybe doesn't have postpartum depression is starting to get a little worried mm. and not wrongly. So no, I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, mm-hmm. but they're starting to get worried. It's like, how long is this going to go on for? What's going to happen? They start future projecting. What if it's like this for another year? Mm. What if, they're not intimate with me. What if they can't look after the baby? What if they commit suicide? What if the depression gets even worse? What if they have to take all these medications? And we start thinking, thinking, and then we start panicking. Now, all of a sudden, we want to get them out of that state. Now, all of a sudden, instead of giving them nurturing care and compassion, loving presence, empathetic resonance through the neuroception of our body, we're panicked. And what does that do to them? They then see us unconsciously, again, the neuroception, not the interoception of what they're feeling inside that comes later, the neuroception is like, going, oh, this person's panicked and unsafe. Now I'm starting to panic more. Right. Now I'm starting to get even more. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, oh, what are they panicking about? Now I've got to change myself. Now I hate myself. Now, mm-hmm. now we're spiraling. Now we're spiraling because we want to change the state that we're in, yeah. in a way that's more often than not abrasive and quick fixes. It's, it's a reflective of the, the society that we live in quick fix, short-term gratification, instead of allowing the person, the dignity of the process and trusting. And I'm not saying don't intervene, but how we intervene is often very abrasive and very intense and very, you're fucking wrong. You need to change. This is not sustainable. You need to change. Sometimes that intervention is somewhat necessary. And there are certain circumstances for that, such as I'm just trying to think heroin addict in a, in a smack house, you got to get in there. You got to pull them the fuck out really quickly. You got to get them out and you've got to put them in an environment that's more nurturing and safe and outside of that. And that can be a little more intense and abrasive, but more often than not, it's really love. It's really seeing people for who they are being witnessed. And that helps us move out of these undesirable states or these unsustainable states of being because depression um, as an example, or that deep sadness 
it's not that it's not valuable. It is, it's just undesirable. And it's not sustainable. Like it's it physiologically, it's not sustainable. Like that amount of stress hormone being released in the body over long periods of time causes rapid debilitation and degeneration at a cellular level, but also in the mind, like the way we think about ourselves. So it's not it's not a it's not a desirable place to be long term. It has something to teach us, but we can't hear the paradox. Life is full of paradox. We can't learn what we need to grow from that experience if we don't immerse ourselves in it. Right. Right. And so, but that almost says to us, but that means we have to be more depressed sort of, we just have to accept where we're at, lean all the way in and make sure we have support and observe Mm. and reiterate and observe and reiterate and trust and take action. But all of that is again, easier said than done. Mm. We just finished up a retreat this past weekend and it's reminding me this this one woman was reflecting and she said after the retreat she realized um her relationship with her partner that i'm, I'm pretty sure she said just ended he was massively depressed for much of the relationship mm-hmm. and she said she was able to reflect on this her part in this the whole time was very much every single time he attempted to speak about where he was at what he was feeling what he was going through she would jump into what you're just saying well, let yeah. me try to fix it. Let me make you an appointment at a therapist. Let me, let me, let me, this is what you have to do, right? Mm. This is what you need to do. And she said for the first time, she realized how she actually contributed to keeping him in that space. Yep. Yeah. It takes two to tango. Yeah. <laughs> so true. It really does. Yeah. We all play a role. We all play a role. So true. Oh. I want, <laughs> I, there's another thing we wanted to ask you about, but I want Vanessa to <laughs> ask you because okay. I feel like you'll okay. articulate. We're, gonna, we're like jumping a little bit, but this is something that we actually wanted to get your we thoughts We want to get you. Good. <laughs> we, um, so recently, um, and you know, we're both therapists. I've been doing this work for a while and um, I got served up just mind, body, green, email in my inbox. I got served up this article about, um, do women really become less interested in sex over time? and debunking the myths around that, right? And so it's written by an MSW and she talks about how there's two different types of desire. And I can tell you, now I'm not a sex therapist, but I can tell you, I've never actually heard of it categorized in this way. So she says there's spontaneous desire and there's responsive desire. And she says 75% of men fall usually into spontaneous, only obviously 15 of women, right? And so she went into this whole kind of breaking it down and what um, what responsive looks like, how you can get yourself more in the mood, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I'm curious to know first, have you ever kind of heard those category, you know, category, categories? I can't talk. Um, and like, what is your thought on this idea of us, I guess, as a gender, really having different types of desire, how that plays into obviously, you know, heterosexual relationships. And actually she said, even she's seen it even showing up in, in, you know, same sex relationships where obviously if they have different types of desire, it's going to kind of make a rub. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm just curious to know like what your thoughts are on that. Culturally, it could definitely play a role mm-hmm. because again, so much complexity is we want to be in the in group. We don't want to be on the outskirts mm-hmm. culture, society, media, societal values tell us that we're a particular way. Then we go, oh, we must be that. When we look at the physiology and the biology of how we've evolved, so evolutionary, not so much evolutionary psychology, but um, evolutionary biology, we look at male and female sex drives being very similar. Uh, 
women are going to want sex like men want sex, mm. um, whether it be spontaneous or responsive. Culturally, um, but but even even again the research that I've done, and it's still there's still so much to to learn in this space. Mm. Are women are females generally more responsive than males when it comes to desirability and sexuality? Like, can they? Does it take them? Because I, I think what you're asking is, does a woman, and you're asking my perspective on, does a woman take longer to wind up sexually? Does she take more time to become sexually aroused? I guess that's the question. And I, I suppose, you know, what would be your response to maybe, you know, cl um, clients or, or especially men coming to you with this concern? Because I know I've heard it from clients around, you know, my wife doesn't want to have sex as often as I do, or, you know, this idea of her being frigid, quote unquote. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. That, that's so let me, let me, yeah, cool. Great. I'm, I'm more clear now. So I'll, I'll come at, I would come at it from a place of safety. Mm. So there was a study done. It was a longitudinal study. I, I can't remember who was involved in it, but it was a cross-cultural longitudinal study. And, and one of the questions it was thousands of thousands of women in this, in this study. And one of the questions that was asked was what would you, if there were no men in the world, what would be the first thing that you do? And the overwhelming response was go for a walk at night mm. by myself. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel that <laughs> on a visceral level. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about that for a moment. Right. Mm. Because mm. that's safety. Yeah. As a man and as a man that can protect himself because i I fight train and I have for many, many years, but beyond just that, just the experiences that I've had, I don't get scared going for a walk at night. It's not in, it's not in my experience, unless mm. I'm in a particular zone or area of the place that I'm in that I become more hyper aware or vigilant. Sure. But I don't have that experience. I don't live with that. Now we have to ask that when we're talking about sexuality, and being really vulnerable and raw and open and seen and witness and, and again, vulnerable being, you know, even quote unquote, somewhat the nervous system or even the mind thinking I'm compromised here in some capacity, you know, I'm naked um, and not just physically naked, but I'm burying myself. Mm. Men don't have these underlying fears. And so maybe because of that, our physiology can prep us quicker for sexual vulnerable activity or intimacy now intimacy that's again another another side note here intimacy is not just sexual intimacy is far more than that and that's definitely another conversation but it is part of sex, sexuality and sexual intercourse and sex and and being intimate and open with each other etc now when we look at what happens in the world with respect to sexual assaults and rape and so forth Yes, young boys are definitely sexually assaulted and it's, it's far less spoken about. As adult men and adult women, when we look at the percentages of sexual assault, what are they? Very, very low for adult men. And if, it's, if, if it is, it's more men to men. Okay, it's very, very rare that a woman is sexually assaulting a man. So there's this conception and this perception in our society of that and reality, by the way, it's not just a perception, it's a reality. That it must be 90 plus percent of women uh, of people that are raped are women. I'd say 95% plus. Uh, and let's, let's call it a heteronormative uh, rape or sexual assault. It would probably be like 98% plus. I don't, I don't know exactly, so I can't, don't quote me on that, but it's very high. And so with that perception, that reality, 
the female body potentially, and this is all mainly unconscious stuff that's happening here, needs time to feel safe. And once they feel safe, they can have spontaneous arousal. Once they're safe in their bodies, once they're self-confident, this is a human thing. Once we're self-confident, once we're safe in our bodies, we can have spontaneous sexual arousal as opposed to having it having to be responsive. And so often you'll hear, we, you know, you'll hear people say this, whether it's, you know, sex therapists, sex educators, um, women's coaches, whatever, you know, uh, foreplay begins well before the bedroom. You know, it, it, it begins days leading up, mm. whether it's text messages, whether it's um, a man speaking her love languages, whether it's a man being attentive, whether, you know, in, in a, in a coupled dynamic we're, we're speaking to, but if it's, um, you know, if it's two single people meeting and, and talking with each other, it's how they're communicating. It's the things that they're saying is how is he making her feel safe? Is he being consistent and genuine in his actions? Like it's all these things. Men don't think that. Like, mm. I don't think, oh, is, am I going to be safe? If I go to her place, is she going to kill me? Like, I don't think that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying every other woman thinks that either, mm. but that's very, it, it's, that's a rarer thought for men. And so that feeling of not being safe definitely impacts and influences our ability to be immediately aroused. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. yeah. I went a little off, off that. Like, no, sort of, not at yeah. all. I but mean, it I, makes I think so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, angle is really that important. I, yeah. I think it is. And I think that's something that a lot of people, and even this, this, this sex therapist who wrote this, she didn't talk about that. I mean, she did talk about, you know, when you talk about responsive, it is like about feeling kind of connected and safe. And like, if I'm thinking about like, oh, I got to do all this shit for my kids and I got to get all this done or whatever, yeah. I'm not going to not be feeling supported. Arousal, so, yeah. right. Yeah. You're in a high stressful really situation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Now, exactly. now, but let's, let's unpack that. That's interesting because you could say, well, what about the, the man that is stressed with his career or is stressed because he doesn't like his body, but how come he can, how can he still just become more spontaneously aroused? And, and maybe he can, or maybe he can't. Right. But let's right. just assume he can. For me, the response is this. He still doesn't have that underlying thing of right. he doesn't feel safe in the world and but you're talking about and, something that's by the way like since the dawn of time this is not a new thing so this has been passed down in the past it's in our generational Correct. trauma that we that's get. right it's in our dna <laughs> and i want to add two things to that so and the first thing he will also use sexuality as a numbing strategy or as a way to forget which is not a bad or good thing it just is it's a thing right it can be a bad thing i don't believe in bad or good but it can be an unhealthy thing but he'll use that as a distraction because again he feels safe enough to do that he just wants to release he wants to release whether it's his ejaculate he wants to release the tension and that's a form of releasing now let's go back to evolution for a minute or the beginning of time or the beginning of humanity or humanoids or whatever men are physically larger we're physically stronger men have traditionally been responsible well i mean check my stats but i don't know how many women are in war compared to men like when, when men, when, when, when wars happen, who goes to war, men or women, largely, of course, women go, of course, men and women suffer, but the soldiers, the vast, vast majority of them are men. We have been responsible for extending the perimeter for creating safety in our physical environment. We are the ones that have been in touch with physical threat. Maybe which came first chicken or egg. Was it because we were just born or evolved bigger and stronger, or was it because somewhat the gender difference took on that responsibility and as a result became bigger and stronger. Right. And so as a result of that, had a self-perception, inwardly guided self-perception and a perception around the community around these are your roles, these are our roles. 
I don't know. But there's that level of com complexity that comes with these conversations with masculine, feminine, with males and females that we so often negate. And to be honest, it frustrates me because we have, we live in such a, I'm just going to, I've got the soapbox for a moment. So I'm just going to stand on here. Love it. <laughs> we live in such a politically, <laughs> politically correct and hypersensitive society that we can't speak to what actually is in mm. risk of offending someone because people are so fucking fragile because we've created this fragility in the world. Right. And, and my hands up for that as well. Like I get hypersensitive too. Sometimes I'm not, I'm not excluded from that. I'm not, someone that doesn't get offended and get sensitive sometimes, especially if I'm in a bad mood, but we don't, we don't, you know, back to what I said earlier, we don't give ourselves the dignity of the process and we have to always change it and change it and shift it. And I think we have an opportunity to actually sell in simple short, celebrate our differences and honor our similarities. Simple as that. <laughs> just so many thoughts. I feel, I feel like everything you're saying is so true and so much of why I really love your content, because I do feel like you go to these spaces where a lot of us are uncomfortable going, but explaining things that we're really struggling and grappling with in our relationships to figure out why we can't meet one another and why we can't sort of get to the root of, you know, <laughs> these issues that we're having in our partnership. So thank you. I mean, this is so much of the work, right? It's right. Like understanding that it's not about you. <laughs> like, it's about this us. Is what we work so often. It's about us as a collective. It's about turning yeah. inward. It's about me, right? And and it's not a personal thing. And so if we're able to step out of the personal attack space yeah. and we're able to just get curious about what's going on mm. for you, then that's where all of the birth of connection is going to come from. Yeah, yeah. in context with that, I agree. And again, sim uh, uh, simultaneously, it is about us because we get to learn through right. the experience of the other. And that's the relationality. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the relational being, right? And so oh, yeah. it's, but what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that when we make it about us in that way that we get offended, we block the connection because now all of a sudden it's too much about our pain and we're in survival mode. And now we're not interested right. and curious in what the other person is feeling. And we're, we're blocking learning and growth as well. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I feel like right. we can pick your brain questions. Forever, but we have some <laughs> rapid fire questions. We ask all of our guests, Stephanos, um, who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, influences um, in your journey up to this point? Oh man, I just got tears. My grandparents, um, my grandparents. Yeah. Mm. My maternal grandparents. Um, just yeah. Speechless as words don't need it. Just my grandparents. Where, how, what do you find yourself in the state of flow? So what is flow for you? Mm. Um, this, uh, moving my body, being in nature, uh, physical challenges, any challenges actually get me in flow. Um, and they sometimes frustrate me, but that's part of the process. Um, writing, expressing as I do a lot of, I, you know, we can call it create content, but essentially it's a lot of expression writing and thinking and feeling that gets me into flow. Mm. Um, just being in stillness and silence. Um, gets me in the flow teaching teaching coaching uh, facilitating gets me in flow particularly when it's somatic stuff as well uh yeah there's a few different things that get me in a flow yeah you know yeah. uh sex being in love being in the in moments of love you know love making whether that's sexual or whether that's that's other um you know deep conversations mm. food with with 
with, with people that I love, get me in flow, exploring new places, uh, particularly with the natural world. Like I mentioned, being in nature, very much for me, ocean, mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what breaks your heart? Injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, people's, it breaks my heart and makes me happy at the same time. People stuck in their pain. And I say that because, and not to be uh, vicious or malicious, but I say that because I know there's an opportunity for them to get out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, shame breaks my heart because it's such, I've, uh, it's been such a close friend and close, <laughs> not enemy, but just it's been such a pain point in my own life that I really recognize when people are in shame, I feel that, you know. I suppose me being an empath breaks my heart because um, I, I feel a lot of the world, but you know, my go-to strategy is usually anger. Like I'll project and get angry as opposed to going to sadness, you know, mm. um, which is, you know, a pattern that I, that I work with and I'm very familiar with and, and I'm, you know, refining it constantly and growing through it. Here's the heavy one. What's your favorite food? the hardest question um <laughs> i love i fucking love food i'm such a foodie so do i that's only yeah. when you were like i find flow in food i was like yep me too it's we actually say that one of my love languages is food <laughs> extra category um oh man it's, it's really difficult um i i I don't want to pass and, and, and flake out on that question because that's a very, that's a very unhealthy masculine trait to be flaking. Um, uh, I want to say all the foods, but okay. Let me just give me a moment. Give me a moment. I'll go you with guys who can't see him. You're like, we're watching in your mind. You're eating <laughs> yeah, all I'm the thinking, foods right going now. Going through all the foods right now. You know what? I'm going to say this. I love, I love cream. I have an addiction to cream and peanut butter. So if I had to choose one or the other, I'd say peanut butter. And my opinion is if you don't like peanut butter, there's something intrinsically wrong with you. (laughs) You're a genetic defect. (laughs) Peanut butter, peanut butter. Okay. Okay. Love it. I approve that answer (laughs) as a fellow foodie. Beautiful. Well, Steph knows, I just, I feel like you are such a gift. Thank you for your time, for coming on and sharing with us. I truly feel like even, you know, this little bit of time we got to share with you is just like so impactful. Um, For anyone listening that wants to have more exposure to some of what you're saying to, um, you know, drink in some of this wisdom, where can they find you? How can they do that? Of course, you can go to my website, stephanosafandos.com or growwithsteph.com, S-T-E-F, or any of my social media channels at stephanosafandos. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate Appreciate you both. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram at Vanessa S. Bennett and at Danae Logan Selkin.